A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax. And think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter... We're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible has the best audiobook performances, the largest library, and the most exclusive content curated by and for Canadians. When you start your 30-day trial, your first Audible book is free. You can learn more at audible.ca slash Canada. That's audible.ca slash C-A-N-A-D-A. This episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks, the easy-to-use cloud accounting software. FreshBooks takes care of tedious accounting tasks and gives you more time to do what you love and actually grow your business. FreshBooks is offering a free 30-day trial for Oppo listeners. All you have to do to get that is go to freshbooks.com oppo and enter oppo in the how did you hear about us section. That's freshbooks.com oppo and enter oppo. From Canada land, this is oppo. <laughs> I'm Justin Ling in Toronto, and I'm joined by Jen Gerson. How's it going, Jen? Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. No, that's that's three pillows I stuffed into a pantsuit. Uh, Jen is no. Uh, she's really gone. For the next few months, it's uh, just going to be me. Well, me and a rotating cast of guest stars from across the country that we're going to bring on to discuss a whole bunch of important issues relating to the federal election. So it's going to be fantastic. But for this week, it's it actually is just me. On this week's show, we're finally shaking out the cobwebs, digging out that turtleneck from the back of your closet, and settling into the fall election cycle. But first, I'm running down everything you have to know before our much maligned leaders hit the hustings for an autumn of abominable photo ops and attack ads. Then, Patty Hyju, Canada's Minister for Labour and Employment, is on the show, somehow. We're going to talk about one of the biggest issues facing the country that has barely even broken through the noise. Housing. And finally, to cap off the show, we're going to ask, where the fuck is the NDP? Well, it's finally September. 
Maybe you've been asleep for the past three months. Maybe you've run screaming every time someone has brought up federal politics, preferring to throw yourself in a lake rather than having another discussion with Uncle Rich about those two ladies who want to bring down the prime minister and what they're really up to. That's fine, because I'm going to catch you up on everything you need to know before the election begins in earnest. All in two minutes. Jen, start the clock. Jen? Jen? Right. Yep. Okay. No, that's fine. Nope. I got this. Just me. So in June, the 42nd Parliament finally wrapped up its work with mixed results. Some big pieces of legislation, including the Liberals' election reform bill, not the electoral reform bill that we were promised, but eh, it's something, that finally got passed, a bill that kind of sort of stops the practice of solitary confinement. That passed too through the Senate with some amendments. And the government's national security bill that, that has been around for what seems like forever, all finally made it into law, as well as a package of controversial pipeline bills that is making Jason Kenney very angry out in Alberta. They've all become law. The government, however, hasn't got around to some other stuff. It hasn't, for example, ratified the USMCA agreement, the new NAFTA, yet. That's going to have to wait until after the election. The government also didn't manage to pass a bill that would have finally added oversight to the Canadian Border Services Agency, which, I don't know, who needs that? But as the House of Commons finally did rise over the summer, Trudeau offered a limited jab to President Trump as he tweeted racist things about four non-white congresswomen, saying in very Trudeau fashion, uh, That is not how we do things in Canada. Meanwhile, Andrew Scheer tried to make friends with cows as he slammed the government's food guide, which apparently doesn't feature enough milk for his taste. I truly do believe that chocolate milk saved my son's life. <laughs> this, as Doug Ford's unpopularity reached new lows, dragging down conservative popularity in Ontario and probably elsewhere. Three books about the Prime Minister came out in the summer in rapid succession, one from National Post columnist John Iveson, another from CBC reporter Aaron Weary, which features lots of insight from inside Trudeau's inner circle, and a third from lefty environmentalist writer Martin Lukacs. So go ahead and add those to your reading lists. But the writer who got arguably the most attention this summer was Mario Dion, the ethics commissioner who wrote a scathing report concluding the prime minister violated the Conflict of Interest Act by trying to overrule Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould in the SNC-Lavalin affair. It offered the clearest, least partisan indictment of Trudeau to date, effectively endorsing Wilson-Raybould's version of events and painting a pretty bleak picture of a government that thinks it only has to play by the rules sometimes. Now, some people have suggested the commissioner got everything wrong, but they're all liberals and, nah, they're wrong. So, heh. The liberal research team, seemingly prepared for this eventuality, started putting some coal in the furnace or wind in the turbine, or whatever you want to call it, by pumping out some pretty damaging clips of Andrew Scheer, like this one. There's nothing more important to society than the raising of children, for its very survival requires it. Homosexual unions are by nature contradictory to this. There is no complementarity of the sexes. Or this one. If any pro-life legislation were put forward, and it specifically mentions abortion as an example, that there would be a free vote. And Andrew did uh, promise that in his interview with us. And not only a free vote for uh, the Conservative caucus, but also including cabinet ministers as well. Which, <laughs> not great. Especially as Andrew Scheer spent all summer actively refusing to attend any pride parades. Well, Scheer says he supports the law on gay marriage and abortion. It's raising an awful lot of worry that he's not doing a good job of tamping down. Scheer has not been terribly visible all summer, but an old face came out to his defense. 2019 federal election is just a few weeks away now, and people across the country are rallying to Andrew Scheer's positive conservative vision. Now, as the Liberals and Tories have gone at it, the NDP have been virtually invisible. 
Jugmeet Singh briefly poked his head out to announce that he would not, thanks to his past statements about gay marriage, support an Andrew Scheer government before disappearing again. The Green Party, capitalizing on increasing public concern about climate change, have vaulted past 10% in the polls and now look competitive in Atlantic Canada, British Columbia, and beyond. Meanwhile, Maxime Bernier and his White People's Party... Oh, sorry, that should be White People's Party. No, sorry, White... It's fine. Meanwhile, has not been invited to any of the debates and they are not happy. Bernier's party has been racked with resignations and allegations from within that it has become a hotbed of racism, white supremacy, and even neo-Nazis. So, not much more to say about that. And there you go. You're all caught up. That's everything that matters over the last couple of months. Get ready for the election. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible has the best audiobook performances, the largest library, and the most exclusive content curated by and for Canadians. On Audible, you can find books like Ghetto Side, A True Story of Murder in America. It's written by Jill Levoy and narrated by Rebecca Lohman. Now, if you have not started this book, it's so good. It won the Audi Award for Nonfiction in 2016. I've just started this book, but it's already blowing my mind. It is incredibly well-researched, but it's actually really compelling and grippingly written. It is the story of violence against black and brown men in America and how policing is failing racialized communities. It's a depressing book on the plague of gun violence, but it really lays out how over-policing of non-white communities has been devastating, but has not actually led to higher solve rates for homicides. It may be discouraging, but it also tells the story of how policing can be done right in those communities and not make things worse. One of the best reviews for the book comes from Rolling Stone writer Matt Taibbi, who called it a brilliant taxonomic investigation into the American violence epidemic disguised as a highly entertaining true crime book. And I'm so into that. You can get this book free when you start your 30-day trial of Audible. Just go to audible.ca slash Canada. That's audible.ca slash C-A-N-A-D-A. This episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks. Now, as I'm sure I've told you before, I am a freelancer and I used to waste so much time opening up my PDF software, editing the invoice number, editing the to adding it up, doing the math, adding the 13%. Oh God, it's in USD. Oh God, I have to convert it. I almost took a staff job because I hate doing this so much. I've tried every other app and software out there and honestly, most of them suck. FreshBooks is honestly genuinely different. It really does make so much of this stuff easier. You track payments, you can remind people, set automatic reminders so the app harasses them and you don't have to, it automatically updates your invoice number, it does all of the math, it tracks all your spending and your revenue, you can spit out reports, so tax filing is actually pretty easy. They've calculated this and they say it saves freelancers 192 hours a year, and that's a whole bunch of time. You should try it. You get a 30-day free trial. All you have to do is go to freshbooks.com slash oppo and enter OPPO in the how did you hear about us section. That's 30 days free, freshbooks.com slash oppo. I, Patricia A. Haidu, do solemnly and sincerely promise and declare that I will truly and faithfully, and to the best of my skill and knowledge, execute the powers and trusts reposed in me as Minister of Employment, Workforce Development and Labour.
Minister, thank you for coming on and joining us. Thank you so much. So according to most opinion polls, housing is one of the biggest issues for for voters, for Canadians. Um, In a whole bunch of cities across the country, the vacancy rate for housing is 0% or 1% or, or some obscenely low figure. People can't find housing, and when they find it, it's too expensive. Somehow, this isn't breaking through to the public. We're not hearing much of this on the campaign trail, but it's something I know that you're passionate about. Maybe just to start off, tell me why you care so much about uh, affordable public housing, and then I'll ask you all the mean stuff later. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for the warning. Uh, You know, listen, I was, uh, before I I was elected in 2015, the job I had was the executive director of of, uh, organization called Shelter House, which was the largest uh, homeless shelter in northwestern Ontario. Uh, We were constantly full to the brim. Every evening, for example, we put out extra mats on the floor because the demand was so high and uh, the demand had been growing for so long. And for me, it just seemed crazy because not only was this incredibly inhumane, but it was also incredibly expensive. The Calgary Homelessness Foundation had done some interesting research on the cost of homelessness and had estimated I think in 2011, and if I've got this number right, somewhere in the range of $120,000 per person per year to maintain someone in a homeless state. And it just seemed crazy to me that, you know, we were using so many resources in such a sort of emergency, urgent way uh, without looking at the true prevention of, of this, which would include uh, more quality, affordable housing, a range of different kinds of housing and more supportive housing in general. Lots of governments talk a big game about ending homelessness. You know, there has been pledges to eliminate homelessness entirely, to at least significantly reduce it. Even the Harper government, um, you know, who is not always a a friend of folks who advocate for this sort of thing, embarked on a housing first initiative. That is getting people into homes first and kind of worrying about the cost and and some of the the other issues later. But we haven't really seen a huge dent in Canada's homeless population. We've actually seen an, an increase in a lot of cities. So when you got into office, what did you figure had to change? Well, I mean, so many things had to change. And I mean, housing is one component of it. But the Harper government talked a good game on a number of initiatives that could possibly help vulnerable people. And yet their actions, both from a legislative perspective and a spending perspective, did the exact opposite. And so, for example, uh, you know, housing uh, dollars, homelessness partnership dollars that were incredibly restrictive or so low as to be practically useless or very, very little use, if you will, uh, you know, organizations against each other to fight for you know very few resources and you know listen I would say that organizations in my community at least when I served at that level are incredibly collaborative but when the resources are that fragile and that few you see you know a lot of tension within the sort of not-for-profit sector in itself you know I I found the Harper government an incredibly cruel government especially to people that were living on the streets that were living in absolute homelessness that were living with substance use issues and in fact, it's kind of a mantra of the conservatives. You know, their focus is on individualism. You can see it in their campaign slogan, like making it better for you. It's all about the individual success. And in fact, the underlying premise of that is that if you're successful, it's because of your efforts. If you fail, it's because you didn't try hard enough. And that was really, really clear to me when I looked at the punitive approaches that we saw for that decade. And it only got worse the longer he was in power. But four years on in your government, you're at the end of your first mandate, seeking re-election, what substantially has changed? You embarked, your government has embarked on a national housing strategy 
Has it made a significant difference? Because by a lot of stats, the dial hasn't moved. Well, the first thing that we did was set out to protect the affordable housing stock that existed. So, for example, on the eve of the election, many of the co-ops that offer affordable housing were writing letters desperately to candidates to say, will you commit to restoring these long-term agreements that will keep our units affordable? In fact, uh, the Harper government had said no, they would not. And so that was one of the first things that we had to do was stabilize the stock that was in existence. And we did that by renewing those co-op agreements but also working with provinces uh, and territories to uh, restore some of the affordable housing stock in in low-income housing. But then moving on, I mean, the commitment of $55 billion over 10 years, a tangible strategy, working with partners, having the support of the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness, enshrining the right to housing in law, uh, you know, working with uh, organizations and and partners around amending that law to make sure that it was going to actually have the, the teeth that it needed. You point out it's been four years, absolutely, but it took a couple of years to actually get those consultations right, to sort of stem the loss in the housing stock that was in existence, and then move forward in, in delivering this money in a way that was going to actually result in, in new units. So I actually remember being there the day the Prime Minister announced kind of the first big step in this national housing strategy. You know, it was called transformative. It was called, you know, this big uh, ambitious plan that had, you know, been waiting in the wings for so long that was so desperately needed. But, you know, now that we've kind of got a chance to go through and sort of crunch some of the numbers. According to the parliamentary budget officer, this plan doesn't really do what it's billed to do. The parliamentary budget officer basically says that the national housing strategy maintains funding levels to what they've been in the past. It doesn't actually increase funding. It actually found that in a couple target areas, especially when it comes to those who are most insecure in terms of housing, it actually reduces funding. Um, have you actually done enough in this front? You know, does the rhetoric you're giving here actually match the, the, the funding you put in place? Well, listen, um, obviously, I believe that this housing strategy is going to reach its target, cutting uh, chronic homelessness by 50%. I have to say that my heart sinks a bit with that target, but it's a realistic target, unlike the Harper Conservatives, who said they were going to actually end homelessness without any tangible plans. I mean, we have realistic targets, uh, removing 530,000 families from housing needs, you know, modernizing and renovating buildings. And our delivery of this relies on partners. And I will say that, obviously... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. We are uh, we are understanding that partners are broader than provinces and territories. As you know, here in Ontario, we have a hostile province that doesn't want to actually work collaboratively, despite the fact that there are so many people in need. And so things like the co-investment fund are really critically important because they empower not-for-profit organizations or other groups of organizations that want to really move forward on this. On, on a philosophy level, though, I mean, a big part of the, the, the federal funding is to give money or you know partner with private developers to build mixed-use residential buildings. So there'll be some condos in there, some rental units, some affordable housing units, or some commercial space, you know, some combination of that. But is that actually going to provide enough space to actually get people into housing soon? You know, there, there are people desperately seeking housing now, and by building these sort of 
mixed-use buildings, is that actually going to do enough in the short term because the housing crunch is is now? Well, actually, mixed-use residential is the best practice for building affordable units. You know, what we've seen is that housing that concentrates a density of poverty in one area of the community is not good for the people that live in that area, nor is it good for the community. If you're in a mixed residential unit and you're living in poverty, in fact, you have an opportunity to interact with people that are not living in poverty, which allows you all kinds of opportunities that don't exist if you're concentrated in a neighborhood where everyone is poor and nobody has any resources. And so from my perspective, moving forward in that way is actually the responsible way to do that. Now, having said that, we're working with communities and uh, and provinces and territories in ways that make sense. As, as we've always said, it is community that will drive the kinds of developments that work for them. You know, once upon a time, the federal government was actually building some of these housing units itself. It wasn't, you know, waiting for private partners. It wasn't looking to, to go with private developers. I mean, you even mentioned some of the units the federal government is now having to refurbish because they're getting quite old. You know, why not get the Canadian Mortgage Housing Corporation back into that business? Instead, it feels like the federal government is, is, is mostly um, giving money to the CMHC to underwrite private mortgages for, for first-time homebuyers. You just earmarked $1.2 billion for getting, you know, young families into new homes. Doesn't that kind of signal, a, you know, a conflicting priority here, more geared towards, you know, middle, upper middle class families as opposed to those who actually need affordable housing or affordable rent now? I don't agree with that characterization. I would say that, you know, what we know is that when you increase stock overall, you increase stock overall, and there is space that is created in, in the entire spectrum of housing. But let me just be clear. I mean, the co-investment fund is working with organizations that cre- is creating affordable units that are very specific, specifically focused on the most vulnerable. That has been um, our prioritization. Having said that, we also know that, you know, many young Canadians are struggling with that first-time home purchase. That's important. In 2020, the portable housing benefit will come online that will give people choice in terms of uh, low-income families' choice in terms of where they live, and they can take that portable housing benefit with them, something that was heavily advocated for by the Ca- uh, Canadian Alliance and Homelessness and other partners. Um, choice is a really important part of housing and homelessness. I mean, one of the things you will hear from people who have lived in poverty or who have lived in housing development is that that lack of choice is really something that they struggle with. This idea that we should just jump in and create more sort of um, intense low-income housing developments is backwards, and it's it's quite frankly doesn't uh, doesn't live up to what the evidence says now. And the current evidence says that that kind of thing, although seems like a good idea and will provide quote-unquote instant relief, creates long-standing problems and uh, contributes to the poverty trap that so many people find themselves in. You do have the option of kind of building, not necessarily, you know, ghettoized neighborhoods or kind of traditional social housing, but actually nice developments. And, and the government can do that. Right. And, and that I, would be I, called I guess, the mixed-use yeah. residential program yeah, that yeah, you were fair. talking about earlier that you, you, you mentioned many people are saying isn't a good idea. I mean, we have to move away from that idea that somehow we can put poor people in one part of the area of the community and isolate them and somehow things are all going to turn out okay. It's The evidence is clear that that does not work. And that what we need to do is actually be having mixed-use residential models where people have affordability. I think it's clear that everyone supports some level of, of mixed units. But I think the question is, is it sufficient? Is it enough units to actually address the need that's there in the market? And, and again, going back to this PBO report, they say in, in black and white, and I'll, I'll even quote it, they say, uh, the impacts of the national housing strategy outputs on housing need do not reflect the likely impact of those programs on the prevalence of housing needs. So it, it, it basically says... 
there's just not enough stock being built to address the need and the demand out there in the market. Uh, so putting aside whether or not it's good or, or, or wise, you know, what's actually being done, do you think it's sufficient for the, for the demand that's out there? Look, I think there's always more we can do on this front. And I think, of course, you know, I would be the first to push my colleagues to see what more we can do. And certainly, um, you know, I recognize that that uh, that there are uh, critics that are saying that we could do more faster. But I'm incredibly proud to be part of a government that has put housing front and center uh, of its mandate in the first, uh, you know, in our first mandate that that ha- that is moving um significantly on this issue. So is there more that we could do? Of course, there's more that we can do. Of course, there's, uh, you know, more aggressive targets that we could pick. But I think we're off to a very good start. And I think that, you know, the work that we're doing across the country in partnership with all kinds of communities that are working on on improving life for the most vulnerable city citizens, I think that work is is uh, very encouraging. Are we going to see anything significant in your platform? Can you just tell me what the platform is like right now? It's really I, quick. I, I wish I knew. <laughs> I, think, okay. I think whether you're talking to a liberal candidate, whether you're talking to a Canadian, whether I think everybody wants to know what's in the platform. But I'll say that, you know, I have high hopes for our platform being equally as progressive as our last platform. One thing I thought was, was very interesting uh, was when the provincial government went forward with a guaranteed minimum income pro- pilot, which included, you know, your riding in, in Thunder Bay, um, it actually saw based on some anecdotal evidence, of course, you don't have the full evidence because the you know the program was killed. Um, it had really good impacts in terms of housing, you know, giving people, you know, basically a check every month or every two weeks led to them having better housing incomes. When that program ended, you know, a lot of those out- those outcomes ended. Is this something the federal government could could potentially be involved with? There's been a little bit of talk about some sort of um, guaranteed minimum income pilot on the federal level. Is that something you'd be open to, especially as it relates to getting people, you know, in a position where they can actually pay rent every month? Well, I think we're always open to ideas that are going to alleviate poverty in the in the country in a way that actually is sustainable. And yeah, absolutely. Poverty is a big piece of why people struggle with housing. I mean, it's all interconnected. One of the social determinants of health is having enough money to live. So, I mean, there are, uh, quote unquote, basic income strategies all across the country. Uh, you know, the Ford government's very cruel halting of increased ODSP, for example, one could argue is, you know, an attack on the poor, uh, you you know, a number of the measures that he's introduced are really uh, about attacking the poor. Um, freezing the minimum wage increase at $14 an hour is an attack on the poor. It's an attack on the working poor. Is it kind of odd to say that Doug Ford um, is attacking the poor by freezing minimum wage at $14 an hour when the federal minimum wage is, is still below that? Yeah, you know, listen, uh, the federal minimum wage has always been pegged at provincial minimum wages, uh, partly because of the complexity of having different minimum wages in different, you know, different settings. As you know, we have an expert panel that's just uh, released a report to me is providing me advice on on how we move forward on the federal minimum wage. And we'll have more to say about that. Fair enough. Um, so obviously, we're just a couple of days away from the actual election announcement. By the way, if you know what date that's going to be, I'd love to know if you just don't no, mind. No, <laughs> I don't. Do you know what date it's going to be? I don't know anything. Um, <laughs> but obviously, yourself, uh, a number of other ministers, a number of MPs have been traveling around the country announcing new grants, new programs, new funding initiatives, um, doing kind of what the Harper government did before the last election, traveling around the country. I mean, there's no big novelty checks this time. Um, but there's certainly it, it, it feels like there's an element of campaigning going on on the public dime. The conservatives are now going after you over it. You went after the conservatives for doing it four years ago. 
Um, is it appropriate for ministers to be traveling around the country announcing huge pots of cash uh, in, in various writings just days before there's an election call? I think it's important as a minister that we do our ministerial duties until we're no longer ministers. And I think obviously an election is coming and Canadians will have an opportunity to weigh in in terms of, um, you know, what kind of uh, government they want to see and and whether they want Canada to move forward or not. Uh, From my perspective, I've been doing my job. I've been meeting with community members. I've been talking to stakeholders. Some of the, uh, the, the grants have just been finalized through departments. And so those organizations have an opportunity to meet with me to talk about the changes that they're going to make with the particular grant as, a, as applicable. Um, in Northern Ontario, uh, you know, we've received so much uh, attention as a result of the work the, that I've done, as also my previous colleague Don Rusnak, that we've had, you know, announcements stacked up and just not the time to be able to do it. So we're obviously uh, slowing down now, but uh, I think it's appropriate to continue being the minister until you're not. But you know, when you when you're announcing a two million dollar investment in a, in a local business um, in your riding or in the riding next door that your party is trying to win just a week before the election call, is it not hard to divorce the politics from that? I mean, couldn't it have been a civil servant who announced the money, or could it have been a press release? I mean, you know, the photo op doesn't that feel a, a little bit gross? Like just a little bit. I don't know. I I don't feel gross when I'm meeting with community members or talking to local businesses that are struggling to get ahead, that are working really hard, uh, that have done amazing work in my own community. If the media chooses to cover that, that's certainly their prerogative. But I I show up and I talk to people about the kinds of changes that we're making as a government. And I'm certain the Conservatives are showing up places and talking about what they'd like to see if they were able to form government. As a matter of fact, I'm positive that's what they're doing. And so uh, they can't spend any money to be the Member of Parliament and to promote the work that we're doing to make life better for people and for businesses. Minister, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Now, if you have, like me, been wondering where the fuck the NDP is, well, I am afraid I do not have an answer for you. In recent weeks, the New Democrats have seen their bad poll numbers slip even further, but perhaps the most disastrous metric for the party is the fact that they're way behind in nominating a slate of candidates. As of late last week, the NDP has nominated, by my count, fewer than 150 candidates. That's less than half the ridings in the country just days before an election call. That is horrible. That is way worse than the other parties, and it's a sign of a party that does not have its shit together. Now, sometimes parties like to try and strategically time these nominations, and the NDP have suggested they're a bit slow because they're trying to find more diverse and non-conventional candidates, but I don't know, it doesn't seem to be that. It seems that increased control by the central party is at least in part to blame. And some are really frustrated by this. Last week, former president of the Ontario Federation of Labour, Sid Ryan, abruptly quit the nomination process in a pretty pointedly written Facebook post. Dear Jugmeet, he begins, Please accept this letter as a notice of my withdrawal from seeking the Oshawa NDP nomination. I am extremely disappointed with the unprofessional and grossly unfair manner in which the Oshawa nomination process is being conducted. Now, he goes on to say that the NDP headquarters has been a disaster and couldn't even set a date for the nomination meeting, nor could they apparently approve Ryan's nomination paperwork in time. The MPP from Oshawa, Jen French, called me and said, you know, we really need you in this election. We're in a bit of a disarray here in Oshawa. You can win it. Uh, we know what your profile and how close you've come in the past. 
and the fact that the boundaries have actually changed and are much more favourable to the NDP this time around, the massive job loss in Oshawa. So with all of those issues at play, plus the writing has got no money, it's got no campaign workers to speak of, and they figured, look, with your name and your organisational skills, you can bring in workers, you can bring in finances, and we have a good chance of winning. Um, so I was persuaded by those arguments, and I said, okay, I'll, I'll put my name in. And um, two days after putting my name in, the party, like, incredulously turned around and approved the date of the nomination meeting, which means the clock started ticking down towards the election day, and only one candidate out of six had been vetted. And I thought, man, this is unfair. Right from the get-go, I was given no opportunity to get a membership list because if you're not vetted, you can't get the membership list. And coming into the, the long labor weekend, and I'm still not vetted, so I figured, okay, I mean, this is this is a game that's being played. This is not just by accident, this is by design. Well, the other candidate is out uh, canvassing and calling and visiting people in their homes. I'm sitting here twiddling my thumbs waiting for, for the NDP to approve my nomination papers. Now, obviously, there's always a bunch of infighting that goes on in every party's nomination processes, but this seems more like incompetence than malice. Sid Ryan goes on to write that the party, quote, has failed miserably to deliver on the basic principles of openness, fairness, and democracy. I refuse to subject myself any further to the charade and regretfully withdraw. They rigged the system. I mean, it's clear. If, if there's six candidates and you go ahead and set the date, knowing full well by setting the date, you're putting in motion the electoral process, and then you're withholding the membership list from the five other candidates, and you're giving an unfair advantage to one candidate who's got weeks and weeks and weeks to go out and canvas. Clearly, that's rigging the system. Yeah, that's pretty bad, especially considering Ryan wasn't some yahoo. He was trying to run in Oshawa, a seat he's almost won twice on the federal level. This is Ed Broadbent's former seat. It's home to a lot of auto workers, many of them who know Sid Ryan's name, and it's a riding where they still came second in 2015. This is crazy. This is somebody they should actually want running, not someone they should be making it hard for. Two or three days afterwards, when this story broke into the news, they sent a notice out. It was basically, the process is designed to be fair to everyone. It's been 10 business days since Mr. Ryan put in his, uh, in his papers, and we're proud of the, the, the vetting process that we have. This, like most other things, does not spell good news for the NDP. That is Oppo. We'll be back next week. That's right. If you didn't get the memo, we are weekly now. Tell your friends about us and find us on iTunes and give us a rating. Get in touch at oppo at canadalandshow.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook at oppocast to let us know what you really think and to let me know how much you miss Jen and wish I was the one that got pregnant. This episode of Oppo was produced by Laura Howells with help from David Crosby and Kevin Sexton for Canada Land Media. Special thanks to Jolene Banning. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. The theme music was by Nathan Burley. And Jen, you have the last word this week. Oh. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.